Welcome to Something Came From Baltimore. I am your host, Tom Galker, and today we have Baltimore's own saxophonist Gregory Tompkins. You may remember him as we discussed Why Is It Good, the lost album of John Coltrane's Both Directions at Once. But today we have him back again, and we are discussing Joe Henderson's 1973 recording Live in Japan. And in this conversation, we're going to talk about Joe Henderson a little, and we're going to talk about the album and dig deep into it and ask, why is it good? Gregory Tompkins is a musician in the Baltimore area. He's also a professional teacher. And if you're interested in working with him, I have his information in the show notes, and he can be your new teacher. So let's get into why is it good? The Joe Henderson live in Japan interview. Yeah. Gregory Tompkins, thank you for joining me on Why Is It Good? Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You had chosen uh, Joe Henderson live in Japan. A Wikipedia information. It was recorded in 1971, but it was released in 73. It's on the Milestone record label. When it comes to Joe Henderson, it looks like he has bounced around. He didn't stay in one place, and he was recording on a regular basis. And it seems that his career towards the end really had a big jump when they started to do the songbook a series. He died in emphysema in 2001. His uh, beauty is his lung capacity, and he was smoking the whole time. It's kind of weird. But that's what they did back then. That's exactly <laughs> what they did back then. They gave you the cigarettes when he started smoking, when he started playing the sack back then uh okay so joe henderson live in japan i find this a tough album but not totally undigestible why is it good why is it good okay um let me give you a little bit of history about joe henderson joe henderson comes out of the midwest and he studied saxophone with larry teal and larry teal was literally the biggest saxophone teacher in the midwest at that time in the fifties, uh, right? Larry Teal played clarinet, flute, saxophone on a classical level. I've heard recordings, he, he was outstanding. Okay, so this is who Joe Henderson studies with. He learns how to legitimately play the saxophone correctly. So we're talking about scales, we're talking about intervals, tone, being in tune. He knows how to do all of that. So he can do that, but it's also combined with a deep-rooted sense of knowledge of how to play the blues, understanding jazz, you know, jazz tunes, harmonies. He was learning jazz solos in his early teen years. He was learning them and writing them down. There are a lot of professional musicians who can't do that now. He was doing it in his teen years. He wrote the song Cordome, which isn't on here, when he was 14 years old. That song is a big jazz hit. It's one, one of the ones that every jazz musician plays. Okay, now why is this album important? At this point, Joe Henderson had already recorded on the Blue Note label. He was like the house saxophone player and uh, played on many Blue Note albums. So... You're looking at somebody at this point in 1971 who is not only at the peak of his powers, but this is seriously, it's like the beginning of the peak. 
I mean, he's got all the control you would want to have on the saxophone, all of it. You know, every, you know, twist and nuance, he's got it. He understands the tunes, he understands harmony. This is the knowledge of the world and you put them in a room and say, okay, go be a mad scientist. And this is why the album can be a little bit challenging to listen to, because when you listen to Improvise, in one second he's going up the horn, and the next second he's making all these crazy sounds. He goes to Japan. This isn't a rhythm section I think he even had worked with before. So they're just sessioning as a first time together, and you get this outstanding product. He takes... Uh, two standard tunes, Round Midnight and Blue Bossa, and demonstrates his knowledge of the of the tunes. He plays the melody well. Um, his improvisations are not only the outstanding, but they explore like every nuance of harmony, melody, and saxophone performance. That's just on the two standards. And then the other two tunes, which are just kind of like jam session tunes, In and Out and Junk Blues, which are very simple tunes to play, he shows what you can do and just simplicity of melody and harmony. It's been said of this album, if you want to be a saxophone player, you have to listen to this album. This is like demanded listening. So that's why it's important. It's interesting that it was live in Japan. A lot of times jazz artists or any artist will go to and, and they'll bring their group and just play in Japan. And where he you know, had uh, artists that were obviously from Japan and then they performed. But like He was coming through a period where he was being political. His album titles in 1969 was like Power to the People. 70 is if, if you're not part of the solution, you're in part of the problem. And then in the pursuit of blackness was seven, uh, 71. And then you got live in Japan from 71. And then black is the color 72. And then it was released in 73. So is this a political statement in some sort where he's like, I'm just going to get out of the country and I'm going to perform, you know, I, across, I, across country. Across I don't think so. Um, you know, jazz musicians have to make a living. That means they have to work. They have to go play gigs. You can go overseas and have an audience to play for, right? And uh, you'll make more money as an artist if you can go there as a single player, right? And pick up a rhythm section there, right? You know, so like if you have to take your band over there, what do you have to pay for? Airplane fl flights, you have to pay for hotels, and you have to pay them. I'm sure if the Japanese musicians, he had to pay them for the gig and probably for doing the album. You know, that cuts down a lot of uh, on the cost. It leaves more money for him, and it doesn't cost as much for the record company. Now, as far as all the, the political statements on the previous albums and the ones that come after it, you have to remember, I mean, he is basically a baby boomer. He's, you know, he's right in there with the same crew of, think about this, what, what else is going on in 71? Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Led Zeppelin the who the rolling stones you know so they these artists they don't want to just be confined by what is the standard of you know what of music performance or uh the material that you you're covering they want to make 
make statements on their own, what they believe in. Now, all of all of those artists. So, uh, but I, I think with this, you know, uh, I don't know how it came to be recorded, whether they said they were going to record it or somebody recorded and said, hey, man, this sounds really good. I'm looking at the original album cover. Have you seen this? Not the album cover, but I saw the album, yeah. It's great. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's like the pants, the watch, you know, the boots. Wow. And uh, then on the back, this is the kind of stuff you don't get anymore on iTunes, right? You know, the little bit of information about the album. It says, recorded in Tokyo on August 4th, 1971 for Victor Musical Industries of Japan. So that's who recorded it. Now, it wound up on the Milestones label. Mixed and edited by Rudy Van Gelder, Supervision, Oren Kipius, Design, Tony Lang. Came out in 1973, Milestone Records, distributed by Fantasy Records, 10th and Parker, Berkeley, California. Uh, the text on here says, uh, Joe Henderson, in the summer of 1971, Joe Henderson briefly toured Japan, making club and concert appearances as a guest artist with local musicians. Highlight of the trip was a week at noted Tokyo Jazz Spot, backed by the best rhythm section that could be assembled, featuring pianist Adiko Ichikawana, I'm probably butchering these names, who can be heard on Jack Dijonet's album, Haven't You Heard? Henderson, who has recorded with the very best of jazz artists, was mightily impressed. He reacted with some highly excited and dynamic blowing and enthusiastically agreed to the release of selections recorded at the club. So there might have been even more stuff recorded, just never heard. Okay, so you're about my age. When did this become a part of your collection? This original album that I'm holding, I've had this since high school. When I talked to you first, you, you chose this album and I went and listened to it and I said, wow, this is really tough. It was a, a what I call like jazz PTSD. And what I mean by that is when I was about 14 or 15, I used to hang out with friends of mine who were just jazz guys. And instead of just listening to, you know, standard jazz, we're getting uh, Cecil Taylor. We're getting Art Ensemble of Chicago. Uh, sure. I'm getting some Coltrane and, and uh, Ornette Coleman. My mind is blown because I'm, you know, I'm, when I'm leaving there, I'm barely digesting the Beatles. That I always call it PTSD. And uh, when I heard this album, like the scar wounds from my past of, of being blown away of sounds when I wasn't ready to digest them, I guess, that came through. What they would call like his jazz, so or like a, a solo would be a freak out. Like listen to this freak out. And then they would like go, yeah, freak out. And then that was like, yeah, right. So, so that's what I identify like this. I was like, when I was writing my notes here, I'm like freak out two minutes, crazy. Then I would like freak out at 420, um, not as scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it went, it took me a while, multiple lessons for me to, to go in and say, uh, I think my reaction wasn't as, was a lot stronger than what what's on the vinyl. It's not as aggressive as the other artists that I talked about. It is all over the place at the same time. Like this guy, you know, basically dominates this whole album. And I do have comments about the, like the drum and bass, the bass mix is really low. We really don't really hear to the bass that much. 
And when mm-hmm. when they do the keys, when they where they're solo for the electric piano, it, it, he's really up in a high end of the keys instead of like all through the whole keys. And what I feel is it almost sounds like a vibraphonist. It doesn't even sound like yeah, yeah. You get that too. Yeah, yeah. It's very short and and his like uh, playing. It almost feels like he's using mallets and he's like you know playing the vibraphone. It's a different sound. There's nothing wrong with it. It doesn't. It's not a. A, a Japanese sound. It is just a different sound, and and maybe possible. It's similar to what was going on at the time. It, it is similar to what was going on at the time. Now I don't know what electric piano he used, but the popular back one back then was the Fender Rhodes. This is not a Fender Rhodes sound. A Fender Rhodes is a much more soft, mellow sound, right? This sounds like the Yamaha Electric Grand which was noted for this particular sound. He's way high up in the on the keys. It doesn't matter. I mean, the bass is like, I can hardly hear mm-hmm. the bass. You can hear the drum though. If we go through the song individually, the uh, two original jam songs uh, were the ones that had the freak outs that were, yeah. that were, were more like, a, it's felt like a free for all. The one that scared me the most uh, was Junk Blues. There's a freak out around two minutes into the song. And then there's another one at 524. you to go and, and play them right at that spot but you know the sound pretty well what's your thoughts just on this song on junk blues yeah the jazz musicians that came up along joe henderson's time period they were very um strict with how they played the harmony meaning that if a chord was suggested like a three note chord like a c major chord c e g the scale that would you would use against that or with it would be a C major scale, which would have the notes of that chord. It would sound very harmonious, right? It would sound like it fits, right? 
everything was like that back in the day. Let's talk about like the 40s and the 50s, the music he would have grown up on, okay? Joe Henderson said that uh, before Ornette Coleman came along, improvisation was like going along a very narrow cavern. You know, there's sure. no, there's no experimentation. Jazz was more um, of a commercial entity, and you didn't want to scare off your your customers. There was that. Certainly, there was that. But even when you talk about, say, like Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker knew every note he was playing, and no matter how crazy he sounded, which he never sounded crazy to me. But when you get to Ornette Coleman, once he starts coming out, he's playing all sorts of notes that don't have anything to do with the chord changes. Now, it never occurred to anybody to think like that, okay? But once that happened, that freed up the music. And what you're hearing on Junk Blues and in and out Joe Henderson said, hey, I don't believe in making noise, but I believe in sound possibilities. That's what you're hearing. So when you hear him like just take off on the sound and he's just going all over the horn, just sounds not even like it's notes, he's creating sounds. You know, it's the same thing that would be comparable to like, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix solos, like on Machine Gun, you know? It's the same thing, all except for it's done on the saxophone. It's, it's just like, you know, it's an experience. You know, some things are just an experience, you know? Um, you know, if you go to like, uh, you know, King's Dominion and you get on one of those super roller coaster rides, you don't need to know how that thing is put together. You know what I'm saying? You know, you just get on it and experience it. And, you know, when you go down those, one of those really steep drops and it takes you around a curve, uh, there's no way that you can explain to somebody what that feels like. You just have to be involved in it and, and do it. And that's what, how the music is taking you, you know, instead of along some uh, very standard melody and improvisation that fits along with the melody. Um, Joe Henderson at points is really coloring outside of the lines. Now, what makes it more fantastical is that when you listen to him do that, listen to how he brings it always back into the song. He literally never misses. Like, I mean, he never goes way out there. And then when he comes back, it sounds like the whole band's lost. You know, he's, he's always able to relate that to the song and to the rhythm and the other musicians in the audience. Now, I'm going to use your comments for the out and in and also the um, junk blues. But there is a freak out for the out and in at 650 that I wrote down is a scary. And then at 750, I have a freak out.
But when you're talking about bringing, uh, taking it out and bringing it back, uh, Round Midnight is a monk composition, and it doesn't even sound like that. But the very beginning and at the last 30 seconds, he kind of just brings it into the original melody. Am I right by saying that he, they were able to loosen that whole thing up? Basically, the beginning of the song, you can hear it. As soon as he starts that first note, right, you can hear the audience just quiet down. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and just the way, I mean, the way it's recorded and it comes out, it's like, it's like somebody has just appeared in the room, you know, like some super famous star or like, you know, some gorgeous girl that walks in the room and everybody's like, man, you know, that's how he starts out. But around midnight, what he's doing is he is improvising around the melody. So that's what he's doing. He's playing parts of the melody and he's doing some improvisation around the notes, but he's doing it extremely artfully and his technical ability on the horn is so complete he doesn't have an issue from moving from one idea to the next so by the time he's done this intro cadenza and he brings the song back in as we call it in jazz terms the top the very beginning of the song well the band knows exactly where he's at they join him right together so you have this solo opening and he goes for a while plays a bunch of ideas great ideas and then once he decides to do the original melody again and start into the improvisation with the band he just requotes the beginning of round midnight and then they're all with him
Just on my notes, I wrote uh, he basically is doing a, a solo for the first three minutes of the song. Uh, yeah, it, it creeps up, and then it really takes off around uh, six minutes into the song, and it's another amazing solo for like a minute. And uh, the piano solo is really good in this song too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to use that, but I just wrote that as a note. And when it comes to Blue Bossa, it seems that the audience already knows this song. They're like they're in the groove. They're right there with them. I could feel the energy change. There's a lot of yelling in the background. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. So oh, it, they they're Blue really Bossa was a that was a jazz hit. Yeah, they were they're with them like through this whole song. It doesn't seem like he deviates that much from this song. No, what's particularly interesting about this one? He doesn't have so many um, sound possibilities and freakouts on this one. He pretty much stays right with the melody and the notes that you would use in a standard improvisation. Now, the only exception in this song is that when you listen to him, use rhythms, variations of rhythms. And that's another thing about Joe Henderson is that he was a master of varying rhythms. He could play the same pattern over and over again with different notes. He could switch the pattern. He could play the pattern backwards. He could even play it upside down if he wanted to through the tune, you know. But what's good on this one is he shows the ability to take one note at different points and just play that one note in different rhythmical patterns, oftentimes short notes. When you categorize this, what what is this? Is it post bop? Is it free jazz? Is it? There's so many categories in jazz that it's it's very oh frustrating. yeah, it's unnecessary. It was yeah. Well, it was the modern jazz of the time period, and he is the pinnacle of it. You know. Now, think about what else is going on in '71, right? Miles Davis is still playing. Okay, 
he's entered into the whole jazz fusion thing, right? Okay. Uh, Return to Forever is just starting to kick up. Weather Report. Okay. So you're getting the jazz guys wanting to cross more over into the rock side of it, right? And then you have guys that are really more rock orientated that grew up with a strong appreciation of jazz, you know? So I don't think Steely Dan had started by this point. Maybe they had, maybe they were up, they had their first. But they weren't the only ones. This is a particular time period where there are some songs that come out around this time period that are the perfect mix of jazz and rock. I always think of uh, Midnight at the Oasis. But you won't need no harem, honey. When I'm by your side, and you won't need no camel, no, no. When I take you for a ride, come on, Cactus Why was he like bouncing around? You know, offhand, like he's on so many artists, and that was because he was a label guy. But uh, he didn't stay really in any band for a long period of time. You know, he played on jazz hits. Um, like I said, he was literally the house saxophone player with Blue Note Records. He played on Horace Silver's uh, song for my father. That was another jazz hit. Um, you know, if you're a jazz saxophone player of his league, okay. Because they're not all the same. And I mean by that is that, you know, you could have 10 outstanding saxophone players, but they're all making their living in different ways, you know? Some become studio players, right? Some may become teacher players, right? Some might uh, just work their local area, you know? Um, you know, he's, he's, he's playing with the best of the best of jazz musicians. So you want, if you're of that caliber, that's the type of people you want to work with, uh, because the quality of the music will be outstanding, and hopefully the bread will be outstanding too. You know, um, he's he's a guy that constantly developed. Uh, I'm trying to think. I noticed that his later work, he always worked with Ron Carter. He's always with him. They were together. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he was um he you're right about that as far as him being with a lot of different people because I don't think he was ever in like say a band for like, you know, four or five years or something like that. You know, he wasn't he wasn't so much of a band guy. He he worked with a lot of different people. Um and I think he was picky about who he worked with sometimes. Um uh, and he was putting out his own albums. Like he didn't, he was consistent. There wasn't, he was yeah, a sideman, yes. but he was also, you know, putting an album out a year. I have several box sets of him. Oh, actually, hold on. This is a very interesting box set. This is uh, Joe Henderson, The Milestone Years. Okay. And literally, okay, there's 12 albums that he did with Milestones, right? And uh, I think that from what I read, what they were trying to do was make him a jazz star. I mean, obviously he was, but 
you know, some people are really stars. Miles Davis is a star. Mm-hmm. You know, he would be a guy who would be known even outside of jazz. Joe Henderson was never of that reputation. Now, what um, I, what I read is that who produced him is the owner of Milestone, and they work together. Like, and when he produced every single album of his career during that time period. And, yeah. and then they looked at him and said, oh, if he does the tributes, like, you know, just only doing Miles songs or, or whatever and, and box them up, they can they can uh, promote him. That was towards the end of his career. They also said he had perfect pit. For anybody that's trying to play the saxophone, you got to listen to Joe Henderson, in my mind. You know, I mean, he is one of the highest role models of the saxophone. Um I don't see that ending anytime soon. Now, basically, I can't remember why the deal with Milestones ends, but I think they basically took it to its conclusion. You know, you want to sell albums, basically, right? And I don't think they ever got to a point where they're selling a lot of Joe Henderson albums, you know? Um, Even though, because I read all the liner notes for this box set um, years ago. So after the whole uh, milestone era is over, um, you know, he records for different little labels like uh, the, the Red Label, that's an Italian label. Um, uh, I think State of the Tenor, which is in the mid 80s, which is two volumes of trio with um, Ron Carter and Al Foster. Now, those were highly popular jazz albums for jazz musicians. Um, Those those are great statement albums. Uh, So he did those. And then by the time you start to get to the 90s, you know, Wynn Marsalis, he's very popular. He's at really the forefront of jazz. They start to see that, hey, wait a second. What we need to do is come up with concept albums. That's something, you know, and that's like when they do that first uh, tribute to Ellington album. I can't remember the name of it, but Wynnin's on it, too. Joe Henderson has a publicist, right? You know, Um, somebody that goes around and and plans articles in the different magazines. When uh, they do the album cover for that uh, Duke Ellington, I think it's Tribute to Strayhorn. There's a wonderful picture of Joe Henderson on the cover of the thing with a beautiful shirt. You see what I'm saying? They're 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 planning everything out. They're like, well, wait a second, nobody's really recorded like uh, these Billy Strayhorn tunes. What if we get a classic jazz player to do it, promote it properly, make make the packaging wonderful, and really go out and promote it? You know, I mean, like Joe Henderson. I'm not saying he never made made a bad album. But he's never made a subpar album. You know, he's, he's, his quality is extremely high. So that thing came out, and for the jazz world, that was a hit. And once they did that, they were like, oh, well, we did uh, Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn on Miles Davis. I think that was the next one, the one on Miles. All right, so we have that final question. Joe Henderson, live in Japan. What's your final thoughts on this album? Oh. Personally, 
if somebody dare says to me, oh, I love the saxophone, right? <laughs> and they want to talk to me about saxophone all night long. We're going to listen to Joe Henderson in Japan. <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? I mean, this, this is like for modern saxophone players, this has got to be the, uh, I know, it's kind of like the Bible for modern saxophone players. It's literally got everything in it, you know? You hear the classical saxophone training. You hear the root of the blues. Uh, Joe Henderson has his own take on music, period. Rhythm, harmony, melody, tone. He's got his own, I mean, he can legitimately play it in the most strict sense, but he's got his own version of it. You know, I listened to it again today, and I was like, man, <laughs> this cat played some stuff on here that'll never be recreated. Not in that type of thing, you know. I, that would be my final thought on it. That's awesome. And thank you for understanding the whole freak out thing, because I never explained it to anyone other than the fact that I, li you know, we would call it freak out. So you knew it exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that whole thing of sound possibility, it, he talked about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like literally being able to take your guitar and, and hook it up to a Marshall stack and you've got a wah-wah pedal and you've got an octave on the thing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're just sitting there experimenting with sounds. Well, he's doing it in its most raw element of just with the saxophone. It's funny when you put it that way, when someone does a guitar solo like Jimi Hendrix, People sit back, relax, and listen to it. But when someone does it with a saxophone, they're intimidated or scared, and they don't look at it the same way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, and, and what's really funny, all that distortion from the sax, uh, from the guitar, and that type of playing comes from saxophone players. Mm -hmm. It was with the saxophone players first, and then it was the guitar players. Because back in the early days, guitar players didn't even have enough amplification to get over the band. Mm -hmm. Well, and, so, and and I'm sorry, but like in the in the 50s, uh, it was the saxophone that was doing the break in a song, and that was the guitar solo. And then when the guitar, yeah. then when guitars became popular and they did their solo, the sax, you know, waned out. It was the sax that was doing the solos. Guitar players often in the early days of improvisation for them, rock improvisation they were imitating saxophone players, you know? So they wanted to learn, oh, how do I distort the note? What can I use to distort the note? You know, I'll overdrive the amp. Oh, I figured out how I can overdrive the amp. You know, how can I set the guitar so that it will do that? Now, the other thing too is that a lot of time to create those sounds on a saxophone, you really have to put some air through the instrument. You're overdriving it. so. It can be scary at times, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Gregory Tompkins, for uh, sitting with me today and to explain why is it good. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah.
Thank you for joining me today on Something Came From Baltimore. I'm your host, Tom Gowker, and it's important that you subscribe to our show. We're not really in a lot of algorithms. We're coming up on our sixth season, and we have a lot of opportunities to talk about music and, and share our excitement about what music means to us. I want you to subscribe. We're now on Amazon. We're on Spotify, iTunes, and also share with others. Let them know that this is out here. We're jazz, R&B, and blues, and we kind of talk about everything. So it's important that you pass the word on. We really appreciate it. We can't wait to see you in season six.